Welcome to SPAC Chat. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the myths around SPACs and do a bit of myth busting. Uh, I'm Tom Burton, Chair of the Energy and Sustainability Practice at Mints 11. I'm here with Jeff Schultz and Sahir Sermeli. We collectively um, have been involved in dozens of SPACs over the course of our careers. Uh, Jeff has 20 years of experience working on SPAC transactions and uh, in this current marketplace where $75 billion was raised last year of SPAC dollars. Uh, we've been quite active in assisting our client base, uh, like XL Fleet, Butterfly, DermTech, uh, Environmental Acquisition, Impact Acquisition Corp, to uh, tap into this capital pool, create and tap into this capital pool. So uh, there's a lot going on, and I think many people have been reading in the marketplace different things about these types of transactions, but no one's really in the weeds. And so what we thought we would do today is spend a little bit of time getting into the weeds and debunking some of the myths around them. Um, the first myth that I want to cover off is that SPAC is a four-letter word. That's not really the case any longer. And um, Jeff, Sa, give me your two cents on your thinking around those. Yeah, so um, the SPAC has gone mainstream, obviously, as you know. So whereas maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when we were uh, working on SPACs back then, you know, it was usually uh, less prominent companies being involved and different types of investment banks. Nowadays, you have all of the, the big investment banks, you have really great successful companies involved, and we have really successful deals that trade up from the IPO price. I think one of the big things that changed is the, the size of the deals. I, I mean, I think, Jeff, when you were doing them um, in the early days, the most of the SPACs were sub $100 million. And then over the last several years, some have bumped up. But now we have mega billion dollar SPACs, uh, which means there's a lot more capital around the table looking at these kinds of transactions. Yeah, hasn't the nature of the capital changed too, guys? Like, I feel like, you know, at least in my experience, what I'm seeing is institutional investors, long-term long holders, either um, partnering with sponsors or um, or themselves investing substantially in, in pipe transactions affiliated with the SPACs. We're seeing a lot of the, uh, the better um, investors, um, you know, Fidelity's T. Rowe Price, BlackRock, you know, the type of investors that are typically investing in IPOs, you know, regular IPOs, are investing in uh, these SPAC pipe transactions. And so it gives a, a, a validation to to a SPAC deal, and you know we tend to see the SPACs that have a committed pipe in connection with the merger agreement, and then they announce them at the same time. We see those deals typically more successful deals. I think it mitigates the risk of uh, redemptions out of the trust uh, by having that pipe uh, secured at the time of the, the business combination announcement. I, I want to say that, uh, you know, that just for, uh, to follow on with Jeff said, and this is Saad from Ellie, um, the SPAC transactions are an alternative to IPO. So a traditional IPO, initial public offering, where a company engages investment banks and then is going to go try to find, uh, work with the banks to put together an offering document and at the end of the process or very late in the process, figure out whether there's interest in buying the company shares at that valuation and taking the company public. I think these SPAC transactions kind of broken that in two. And because of the amount of money available, people are looking and 
saying, hey, as an alternative to doing an IPO where I find out at the end of the process if my timing's right and if there's market interest, uh, these SPAC transactions get signed up and determined much earlier in the process as to whether there's a level of inf interest if you're doing one of these pipe deals side by side between a, a company that's already public, this public shell SPAC, um, and a group of pipe investors uh, who are investing in security saying, if this deal comes together, we're putting in 150, 200 million. At that point, and this can be, you know, six weeks into the process, two months into the process, rather than four or five months into the process in a traditional IPO, you essentially know that you've put together a deal to get the company financing um, and to be publicly listed. And so there's a big difference, and I think people now are saying that's that's a real option that we got to look at, and it is not a, an option of last resorts that maybe it was 15 years ago. And so I think that's really tells us why people are looking at these as a way of going public in a more traditional environment, and they're they're not a it's not a bad thing, and therefore it's not a dirty word anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, you know, picking up on that same thread, I want to talk a little bit about redemptions. You know, I think a reason why these were considered uh, four-letter words in the past was that uh, there was substantial risk that the initial SPAC investors would redeem the entire trust at the closing of the deal, leaving the operating company that uh, completes the SPAC uh, as a public company with a boatload of expenses and very little fresh capital, which is uh, almost the opposite outcome of what you would have expected. Uh, but uh, how are you seeing redemptions now? What, I think there's a trend away, and uh, we're we're tending to see longer-term investors, in, both in the initial dollars and in these pipes. So there, there, there really isn't that isn't the same kind of redemption risk, perhaps that there used to be. Um, what are your What are your thoughts, guys, on redemptions? Yeah, so definitely on the on the, the bigger spacs, and as I had mentioned earlier. The, the SPACs that have lined up a committed, sizable pipe transaction at the time of signing the merger agreement, those tend to do well, trade up, you know, above the IPO price, which is kind of the, you know, the amount in trust is the is is the price that you want to trade above. Uh, that in that case, people generally don't redeem if the price is above uh, the trust price. So we see a lot of these pipes with really great investors that are, um, like I said, kind of the fidelities and T-Row prices. Um, we see those involved and it validates the, the SPAC and the business combination and um, generally it's been uh, perceived very well. And there've been very few redemptions for those companies. Uh, whereas maybe for those that don't have that, that lined up, there's more risk involved. Agreed. Right. So then you're looking at, uh, you read these statistics that say, you know, um, I've had clients say, gee, you know, I should assume 25% of the uh, of the trust is going to be redeemed if we go forward with this transaction. And, and the reality is that it's not so much that as much as you either have a successful transaction where the pipe validated the valuation that the SPAC has provided, and there's virtually no redemptions, you know, less than 10%, maybe even less than 5%, or a transaction which was mispriced maybe there wasn't a you know sufficient pipe proceeds raised uh there's um you know potential liquidity questions etc and then in those cases you get a lot of uh of redemptions you know uh, nearly every every dollar in the trust is redeemed um it's more of a barbell isn't it guys 
Yes. Yeah. And this is saw. I mean, I think the the basic math um, is that that uh, pipe shares are redeemable at ten dollars a share, um, just prior to the the merger and the consummation of the transaction. So people who hold the pipe stock and are being asked to vote on approving the merger, um, the, the the deal can be approved, but you still have the right uh, under the initial documents to get your uh, to, to get ten dollars per share back. So if the market has responded, so that sort of sets a floor, right? If the it's hard for the stock to go below, far below ten, and in fact, I think there are arbitrage funds that were playing this for a while uh, during the pre-merger period because you can there's a trust fund set up that's holding ten dollars plus interest to pay back to you if you want your money back. But if the stock has gone to fifteen dollars a share or twenty, or you seen some of these deals go way beyond that, um, it would be hard to expect. It would it'd be hard to understand why anyone would then say, I'd like to ask for my $10 back, because if even if they don't like the deal at that moment in time, they could trade the stock and sell it at $15 or 20 or wherever the stock is at that time, and, and the redemption won't be their problem. So um, I think what you see is where the stock has gone up more than a certain amount beyond the $10, uh, there's almost no redemption. Um, and, and where there is, you just think that it's, it's likely some kind of error or someone who didn't understand how the process was working. In fact, a couple of the SPACs have had to extend uh, some of the timelines out there as they rush out to try to make sure people understand what they're doing with the redemptions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, before we move to the next myth uh, uh, on the four-letter word piece, another trend that I'm seeing that sort of cuts against the four-letter word is that we're seeing um, sector-specific SPACs being formed. So we're seeing, you know, I think of like environmental impact acquisition, the one we worked on, you know, you've got industry experts coming together to be the sponsor group, raising the capital to then find a high-quality company. So it's not um, simply a financial investor uh, creating the SPAC, seeking any acquisition, but they're seeking one within their specific industry space. We're, we're seeing quite a bit of this activity in sustainability. I mean, there's, I think there's been north of $16 billion, you know, to date in the last, you know, this, in this cycle raised to dedicated to sustainability transactions and, and some very high profile CEOs who have built and succeeded with companies, uh, taking companies public, et cetera, over the years sponsoring them because they have a knowledge base and experience that they can lend to a board uh, of a company that does do a DSPAC, you know, that really differentiates them. So that, that to me, demonstrates this sort of mainstreaming and, and high quality that, that Jeff was referencing a little bit earlier, you know, given, you know, top tier investment banks becoming involved in others. All right, well, let's move to the next myth. Um, hey, SPAC, same thing as an IPO. It's just an IPO, right, guys? <laughs> Well, there are similarities in that um, a SPAC transaction is you are becoming a public company. So there is a significant amount of uh, preparation that needs to be done. You're just not like, oh, let's just do a deal with a SPAC um, and access this big pool of money. There's a lot of work that goes involved in uh, preparing uh, financial statements, disclosure, uh, you know, IPO level disclosure about your company tax considerations about you know, structuring a deal with the, with the SPAC, definitely reporting requirements uh, with the SEC for the SPAC transaction itself and as a public company post-closing, you know, regular reporting requirements with financial statements. Uh, there's you know, reporting to the market and those type of uh, issues. So corporate governance, 
all sorts of committees and charters um, and policies to create for a public company. Um, and there's also the human capital, the human resources and dealing with uh, an organization that is going to be a public company and will need many more personnel to, to handle that type of burden. So it is similar to an IPO because you're becoming a public company. And uh, what are the differences though? There, I think there's yeah, quite so a few. I mean, Saw noted the pipe and the valuation. You can figure that out early. I mean, that, that to me is a huge benefit over a traditional IPO. Yeah, so, and, and another big one um, is uh, the use of financial projections. So in a typical IPO, regular IPO, you can't uh, use the safe harbor for forward-looking uh, statements that uh, is afforded under the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act. There's a specific uh, regulations that it does not apply uh, to initial public offerings. However, that limitation doesn't apply to the DSPAC transactions because the SPAC is already a, a publicly trading company. So they are able to include financial projections in the proxy statement form S4 registration statement that's filed in connection with the, the transaction. And that's, you know, that's an advantage to tell a story, a, a growth story uh, that a lot of these target companies uh, in these SPAC transactions want to tell. Yeah, that, that, that's huge. In fact, the SPACs provide pretty detailed information, multi-year look ahead, uh, you know, look ahead uh, with respect to the target company, right? Because when they're providing that information, the, the company that wants to merge into the SPAC is still a private company um, and sharing those financials as part of the, the analysis as to whether the, the stockholders and boards of both companies should approve the deal. Um, I think what we haven't yet seen um, and, and we will see more of uh, is what happens in the future uh, when, you know, if and when some of those companies aren't able to meet some of the uh, targets that they put out there for themselves and, and what type of potential there is for stock drops and then, you know, ensuing shareholder litigation. Um, so I think, you know, that, and that, that, I guess, at the end of the day is, is true for both public, you know, companies that go uh, public via a traditional IPO um, or, or a SPAC transaction. It's just in the traditional IPO, eventually those companies are tending to put out projections that look about a year ahead, uh, whereas the, in the SPAC deals, uh, people are seeing projections that go out three, four, five, in some cases, six, seven years ahead. Yeah, so, uh, Sa, I think you just uh, hit on the topic of one of our future uh, SPAC chats. We, we ought to be talking further about that, but maybe maybe we wait six months or so and see how some of this begins to play out. It's a, it's a great question. Um, what about uh, the idea that these uh, SPACs are faster and cheaper uh, than a traditional IPO? I guess there's um, there's some nuance to that, isn't there? Yeah, well, one thing I think um, uh, in terms of the, the timelines is that the, the ultimate timeline to me seems about the same. Um, of, so I'd say sort of four to six months with time to get your uh, SEC level PCAOB, uh, Public Company Accounting Oversight Board financial statements ready. 
but but one of the differences I see is uh, the the way things play out at the back end. You know, in a traditional IPO, the banks work with the the underwriters, work with the company to help come up with what they think an appropriate valuation for the company is for purposes of pursuing investor interest in the IPO, and then usually the the banks propose a haircut to that number. Um, and that can range anywhere from five to 15%. And, you know, the notion is that there's some level of discount they want to build into it for that first round to create excitement in, among investors to be able to participate in the IPO and then get some kind of momentum in the stock going forward. Um, so, you know, that, that to me is somewhat comparable to the sort of insider positions, the sponsor positions in SPACs. Um, which is another sort of noted element of, of SPACs. So sponsors uh, tend to hold an interest that, that gives them, a, at a low cost, uh, about uh, the 20% equity interest in the pre-merger SPAC. Um, and so at the time of the merger, uh, that sort of added dilution. Um, and I guess that that you sort of got to compare to how big is the is the merger target. So if the merger target is much bigger than the stack, then the dilution is smaller, right? Because it represents a smaller piece of the overall. Or if the stack is large in comparison to the target, uh, then there's sort of more dilution for that for that sponsor piece. But at the end of the day, the sponsor is helping facilitate this transition into public hands, um, and so. You know, I think you got to look at that and compare it and, and recognize that there's also, you know, that that may be part of the built-in discount um, that's sort of equivalent to uh, the, the haircut that uh, that companies take when they go public via traditional IPO. Yeah, good point. And, you know, you started to hit on the, the last of the myths that we're, we're trying to bust here today, which is that, you know, the SPACs are expensive and they enrich sponsors at the expense of other investors. Uh, you know, there was a recent re, uh, study that was published by a couple of law school professors, uh, one out of Stanford. And forgive me, I don't recall the exact name of the article, but it was a very uh, thoughtful and data rich article uh, suggesting just that, you know, and um, I think that the challenge that I had with the article was that it took only six months of data for the first half of 2020. And, it, and I don't think it incorporated a lot of the trends that we've been talking about so far today. Um, so wanted to, you know, cover off some of how this works. You know, um, are they really that expensive? Are, are, are they really enriching sponsors? And, you know, uh, and, and is this the expense of the investment community? Um, let's let's uh, spend the last you know five minutes or so, ten minutes that we have uh, on this call to to uh, to address what we're seeing in the market, which is um, I think a different result at least at the moment. Yeah, so the sponsors are making money, but we're seeing a lot of negotiating with the sponsors um, into in either reducing the the promote the founder shares or setting price targets for those shares where they're uh, locked up or not um, you're in escrow until uh, certain price performance targets are met. So if it trades, you know, 100% over the current price, uh, you know, this many shares gets released and so on. Um, so, you know, that is a negotiable part of these deals these days, especially when there are so many SPACs looking at, you know, what is probably too few really good companies. Um, so you're seeing, um, you know, really good valuations for those companies and that bodes well for the, those companies and their shareholders. So what do you think? 
yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Jeff's right on the money. I think that, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's somewhere in between what I was mentioning before, the sort of the notion that, hey, if you're comparing this to a traditional IPL, you got to look at some of the built-in, uh, um, you know, effectively uh, downward pressure on pricing as a part of the desire to, um, you know, make sure you get lift off into the IPO. Uh, some of that's already been de-risked in the stack by the fact that the insiders are there helping put together the pipe transaction, uh, as well as, you know, f uh, taking the, the stack public prior to the time you connect for the, for the merger. So I think, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, you, you, you gotta recognize that there are comparable costs, uh, in the traditional IPO. And then on the other, you can say that, uh, you know, those things, even in the existing SPAC deals are negotiable. So so uh, I think depending on the amount of money on the table and the value creation for all the different parties involved, uh, you know, you try to find the right the, the, the right in between ground that uh, makes it uh, you know puts in place the basics for a successful transaction for all the parties involved. Yeah, I mean, I think you look at like overall sponsor dilution. If you if you can negotiate a little bit, great. But at the end of the day, if you get the right valuation as the DSPAC company, right? then the overall dilution um, that the sponsor group provides can be very low single digits, um, which, you know, ultimately can make the, the transaction worthwhile. Um, you know, the other uh, piece I think about is uh, the expenses, right? You know, the, the investment banking fees, accounting fees, legal fees. And I'm finding that it, it looks like they're not overall much different than what you might see in an IPO. Uh, perhaps transaction fees are slightly higher, but what we're finding is because of the proliferation of SPACs being raised, the proliferation of transactions, de-SPAC transactions, that the there is a bit of a market, you know, it's not the Wild West anymore. There's a bit of a market coming together around the appropriate uh, investment banker fee for the pipe transaction, the appropriate investment banker fee for uh, to, to represent the company going into the DSPAC, the operating business, uh, a, a standard investment banking fee for the raising of the capital in the SPAC. Um, and similarly, uh, we're seeing on, on the accounting and the legal side fee runs that relate to the reality that you've got multiple transactions, not just one transaction kind of wrapped into one. Uh, so that's all creating some normalization. Um, and I think we'll continue to do so uh, more so, and and I think ultimately that helps drive you know greater ultimate value in these transactions for the for the companies that ultimately become the public reporting company. Yeah. Well, I'll add, you know, I guess one, one thing to keep in mind in that regard is, uh, you know, context matters. So, um, you know, smaller SPAC deals, um, which you know maybe have a little more of the hallmarks of the older SPAC. So there's less capital at the table. Um, and some of those costs don't go down proportionately. Some do. Mm -hmm. um, and to the extent they don't, you know, things like uh, legal accounting, all the work of building an infrastructure to have a public company um, can, you know, can, can be something that uh, needs to be something that companies are aware of. So, you know, going public and being a public company and being listed on NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, if those are your goals, um, you know, that, that's an expensive proposition. Uh, and so 
you know, that, that's one of the reasons I would say, you know, a co companies that have smaller potential market caps, um, you know, uh, $100 million, even $200 million, those companies are in the zone of, you know, they really have to take a long, hard look at uh, what the value they're getting out of being public is and, and what it costs to be public because you need to have a public company accounting team internally. you got to have a public company CFO. you got to do the regular reporting and audits at a much higher level than you would have had to do if you were a private company. And the great trade-offs, you get access to public markets. You have the momentum and the possibility of becoming a billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar company. But, uh, you know, those costs in the, in the early periods are something you got to be aware of, especially as a percentage of the overall net proceeds of your transaction. Yeah, I think in the in light of the, the proliferation of capital raised over the last year and a half or so and the transactional activity happening, I'd love to see that group out of uh, Stanford uh, refresh their report and, and, and provide another six months of data for the second half of 2020 and maybe even into 2021, you know, uh, to see, in fact, whether you know, these are the kinds of transactions that can benefit both the spot, all of the sponsor, the operating company, you know, and the investment community. I mean, if we can, if we can show that, then these will truly be a mainstream uh, method to, uh, to raising capital and ultimately becoming public. Um, any parting thoughts before we wrap up this session of SPAC chat? I look forward uh, to having a lot of more of these chats because there's a lot to talk about. There's so many of these things yeah. going on right now. And uh, we're every day working on multiple deals, dealing with a lot of issues that, uh, you know, we can talk about with everyone. You can learn a lot from this. Yeah, maybe we'll do some shorter segments, deeper dives, something like that going forward. So anything else from you, uh, Sa? No, I, th I think Jeff's right on. There's so much to talk about. Uh, all these transactions are different. There's a lot of little pieces that um, depend on the company, the sector, the business, the momentum, the type of investors you have, the overall size of the deal. And, and all of that, I think, you know, correlates in different ways to uh, the opportunities for success, successful capital raising. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Good stuff. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank Looking you. forward to doing the next one. All right. Talk to everybody soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.